Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. We just heard there from Kim Salmon and the Surrealists from the album Rantings from the Book of Swamp. Right now, we're going to have a bit of a chat with Kim, but uh, we're also going to be having a chat with his bandmate and colleague. I think they've both muted themselves at the moment, but uh, no. I'm here. Excellent. Hello, Kim, and hello, Stu Thomas, as well. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hi. Hi, Richard. So I thought one of the reasons to play a track off uh, rantings from the Book of Swamp was because it was a largely improvised album, and one of the things traditionally with surrealist art uh, has been that it allows the artist to draw on their subconscious to present work. So uh, a question for you both, but Kim, we'll start with you. The exhibition that you're presenting at One Star Lounge and Gallery in West Melbourne, which opens tonight, The Surrealist's Exhibition, how surreal is it? Is it? Uh, are you literally trying to draw on your subconscious to create art the way The Surrealist's originally did? Um, I think I could be said to be doing that because the way I work is that I let accidents happen with um, watercolour, actually. I use um, watercolour inks, and um, there's a lot of the technique I use. I I have this masking ink that I put on there, and I kind of basically try to be free with my drawing with that and then let that dry, and then I put... um, see where the paint takes me after that, and eventually, after having lots of conversations with the painting... (laughs) I um, know where to steer the thing, and at some point it will tell me that it's finished. Yeah. And so I, could, I think I could safely say that it was adhering to the surrealist um, manifestos. And Stu, what about yeah. you, given that you're also uh, presenting work in the exhibition? To what extent are you allowing your subconscious to create the work rather than consciously creating it yourself as an artist? This, uh, I've got a couple of streams of... of um of my art and um, the first one's more like um, sort of made up with no planning and it's very kinetic and uh, reactive if you like painting and um, often done in one sitting so I, I think that that's definitely drawing on the unconscious because it's not planned in any way but I do have this other sort of stream of art and it's um, quite quite pre-planned and premeditated and carefully uh, executed actually um, and it's quite graphical and um, almost logo like and um, that also leads into the third stream which is uh, which is 3d assemblage um, which the bulk of my exhibition is uh, um, so you've got to really plan those kind of things and place elements very carefully and, and be very skilled with tools and so on, which is a bit different from just using the paintbrush this time. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I, I do find that. And also in, in the themes of my work, I think that does draw on the unconscious, uh, subconscious um, with sexual imagery and sort of playful, playful ways of looking at death, um, um, you know, memento mori sort of style. Uh, which means, you know, remember you're going to die. Um, you know, looking at 
why why we need to do things like that. You know, we, I guess we're looking for some kind of immor- immortality in in some way. Why do we do art at all? You know, the I guess the any art form in a way, regardless of whether it's music or in this case the the visual arts uh, with the work that you're both presenting in the exhibition. It's always going to be drawing on the subconscious in some way or another because art seems to be an expression of our deepest urges sometimes, of what it... Like, literally, art is a a reflection of what it means to be human. We don't always know where ideas come from. It's about how we express them that then becomes conscious control or unconscious control. What's easier for you both to express? Does music come more naturally to you or does your visual art practice come more naturally, Kim? Yeah, that's a funny thing, I've got to say, because um, the first... I was probably drawing before I could uh, talk. My my mum handed me a um, set of uh, watercolour paints when I was three and I figured out wow, you can communicate with this. And by that stage, I, I wasn't really talking much. I could talk eventually, but um, and I waited till I had some proper sentences before I talked. But nonetheless, um, yeah, so all my childhood, that's what I was really fascinated with, was painting and um, drawing. So, um, and I eventually ended up in art school. But as happens with many... Art people people in that realm they um, they also play music and uh, I, I took a I took a gap year basically but I'm still I'm still on it but I've kind of been returning to art school but I'm too old they wouldn't let me back they actually the university doesn't exist anymore it, it used to be called the WA Institute of Technology but um, now it's the Edith Cowan University I think but I don't think you know that that's long gone my chances of continuing with my you know going back after having deferred so um I the thing that I had though was that I found uh, drawing an easy thing but after all all of that school all of that time in art school as well I found it really hard to know what am I going to paint what am I going to draw it was all technique and I loved doing it but I felt that I didn't have anything to say as a young 19-year-old and I just went out and started doing things and found myself in a band instead very quickly and uh, that's what people know me for. So, um, But I had to learn how to play music, whereas I kind of knew how to draw. So um, that's probably more natural for me, but I had to get over the, being self-conscious about it. So we're talking about getting back to the unconscious. Well, for me, Richard, uh, music and art, very, very tied in. Um, similarly to Kim, I was always drawing at school, um, preschool and, you know, getting up to no good and, and, and destroying people's walls and, and desks and so on. Um, um, in that way, I always felt like if I did art, um, it was a little bit of a rebellious thing because I'd always get in trouble for it. But um, just just going into music, I didn't, I didn't, I couldn't get... Speaking of WAIT, wait, um, I also went there, but I couldn't get into the um, course I wanted, which was art and design. And uh, unfortunately, I got my second choice. I got accepted for economics, which um, <laughs> lasted about three weeks. <laughs> it's terrible. And um, so obviously that wasn't for me, but I kept doing art just for my own self. Anyway, um, eventually I, I got a guitar and... and I was feeding my creative urges into that because um, 
I like spending time alone and doing things beyond school and sport and, and uh, peer groups and all that. And I found myself um, just just playing guitar a lot and um, that, that just sort of naturally happened. But then further down the track, like many years, decades, uh, you find yourself having to do the graphic art for 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 your music or your band just to save money and, and also use your skills. And um, so I've often found that uh, it's all fed itself, really. I mean, I've come to this point where I'm a reasonable graphic artist and that's thanks to music, really. So it's all just been um, on the back of each other, really. can't really say what's... what's uh, what the differences are now. If you've just tuned in, I'm chatting with Kim Salmon and Stu Thomas, who you may know as musicians, but we're talking about their visual arts practice and they have a a joint exhibition, the Surrealists exhibition, at One Star Lounge and Gallery, located at 301 to 303 Victoria Street, West Melbourne. There's a tram stop just outside. The exhibition opens today and runs through until the 1st of May. Now, music is an incredibly collaborative art form. Uh, Even if one person writes the song, somebody else is bringing their own interpretation to it. You're suggesting a a, a change in lyric, a change in chord, adding an instrument, whatever it may be. For visual art, do the two of you ever collaborate and feed your ideas into one another's art practice? Or is it actually pleasant uh, uh, and uh, empowering to actually have something that is separate from one another, given the the longest musical association that the two of you have had? I think the latter, um, for me. Um, The thing about art, uh, as in visual art, at least the way I practice it, is that it is a very solitary process and... For me, for instance, like last year was um, an ideal time to actually explore where I could go with with um, visual art. Whereas, not only is it collaborative um, playing with other musicians, there's that performance aspect where, whereby you have to you know you have to be comfortable in front of a large group of people. I, I, I'm naturally an introverted person, so and, and very solitary. I, I've been that way, and, and it's been a big thing to conquer um, my my self consciousness on a stage over the years. I think I've got there, you know, in my sixties, really, way too late. But um, <laughs> better late than never, never, of course. Yeah, that's right. But um, I, I, in fact, I used the fact that I was awkward on stage as part of where, what I was doing. I, I liked the idea that I could make people feel uncomfortable in my self-consciousness or, or vice versa. So uh, there was that. So maybe there was an aspect of performance art in that. But when it comes to the performance aspect of my um, visual practice, I guess it's really down to the really traditional things of, oh, he's a good drawer or he's able to um, command the space on the paper and, um, you know, got a good sense of colours or whatever, line. So um, there's a, there are those things um, that I suppose are really what got me into it in, in art in the first place, just being able to make marks and make, you know, communicate with them. But, um, uh, yeah, it's been... The surprising thing, it just seemed like a good idea that we, us being in a band called The Surrealists, that why not have use, use that as a bit of a pun for our exhibition title, but it was very um, refreshing and surprising in a really good way to see that what we both do happens to have that aspect of it and yet it's we're very different what we what we are is very different from one another and uh, i think it really complicated they, they complement each other well our works 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, it's um, it was a bit of a spontaneous um, thing, the um, whole exhibition, and uh, I think um, spontaneity is very important in art and um, even even in the organisation of it. But yeah, music compared to uh, art, yeah, um, when you are playing music with people, uh, you do respond to what's going on around you. Um, someone will play something, you you play what what it makes you feel like playing in response and um you when you're on your own doing art you uh you do a similar thing actually i don't know about you kim but when you put a first mark on a page for example it's got to go somewhere else so you've got to react to that mark and that's um, what i was sort of referring to when i was saying like, you know, the paintings are talking to me because yeah you being a conversation really it's and it used to be something that didn't happen on on a small scale so that's why I'm kind of grateful to have had all this time in isolation where I could actually really explore big spaces and have to get into that conversation. Yeah, well, I find that, um, yeah, that's right, a conversation with a canvas or a painting, it does, sometimes it takes a, a long time and you, that stops talking to you for a while. And that's then you've finished. Maybe, but I um, often find that often you find yourself just staring at it and it, and then something else will come to you well visually if you're not in words hopefully um, well that's okay too um you got to be a little bit mad to do art anyway but um i think mad. <laughs> <laughs> so you know you're visually representing i don't know you're, you're visually representing um, unconscious urges and also feelings and um and also action. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting visual art because it says a lot um, about you, whether you want it to or not, and it says a lot to people in different ways. Well, it's very interesting. So it's, uh, it's almost psychological. <laughs> Sorry, but I think, yeah. Putting, you, putting yourself on the couch there. <laughs> <laughs> if people would Music like to see well. what... Music uh, does. Yeah. Lyrics. I was just going to say, uh, you can listen to uh, to music, but uh, if you want to see what the visual expression of uh, what Kim Salmon and Stu Thomas have created with their separate but parallel practices, the Surrealists exhibition is on at One Star Lounge and Gallery, 301 to 303 Victoria Street, West Melbourne, opening tonight and running through until the 1st of May. Uh, so uh, I hope the exhibition opening tonight goes extremely well, gentlemen, and thank you both for joining us on the program today. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Midsummer Festival normally happens in, as its name suggests, summer. Rather than rebrand themselves Mid Autumn Festival, however, uh, because of COVID, the festival shifted itself to a little bit later in the year, running from the 19th of April until the 5th of May. Now that, and definitely a wise decision because now we can gather in much larger groups than we could earlier in the year. Joining us on the line is the CEO of the Midsummer Festival, Karen Bryant, to tell us about some of the program highlights, the program having been recently launched. Karen, a very good morning to you. Good morning. So did you at ever, any stage ever consider changing the name to, to Mid-Autumn, or which would, doesn't quite roll off the tongue in the same way as Midsummer? No, look, obviously there's been lots of jokes, and I think I stood up on launch night and announced Mid-Autumn. Um, 
but uh, you know, Midsummer is a well-loved, well-known festival, um, and uh, you know, really, I think in this year, people are a little generous in understanding of the reasons for why we're why we're happening in um, April and May. Now, Midsummer is one of a series of queer cultural events that happen around the country. We've got the the Mardi Gras Festival up in Sydney. We've got Melt in Brisbane, Feast in Adelaide. Uh, We chill out in Dalesford in regional Victoria. How, to what extent, to what degree do festivals like Midsummer and its peers around the country, um, do you share acts, for example? Do you share programming tips and ideas? How collegiate is the queer cultural festival circuit? Um, look, there, you know, there's certainly um, a lot of conversations and, and, and events that might be developed in one area that go and tour the circuit, but I don't think it's specific just to the queer festivals. So, um, you know, we've worked really, really hard um, over the last, you know, four or five years around establishing ourselves, you know, as a leadership organisation in, in arts um, and um, queer cultures. And that's led to us playing a really strong development role in both artists but also work year-round. And that means that we're often working on uh, shows um, that might be being developed that might also be in the Perth Fringe or the Adelaide Cabaret Festival or, um, you know, up, up, up in Perth. You know, there's, there's so many um, different sharings that occur across the industry um, to, to maximise um, artists and their work these days. And so, you know, we, we, we'll, we'll work with just about anybody. Um, <laughs> but really, it is, you know, our role very much is around, um, obviously, for three weeks a year, um, showcasing um, the very best um, arts and culture in queer cultures um, in Victoria and nationally. But beyond that, you know, is year-round is the development of work for that showcase, but also for other showcases. Um, so we take that role really seriously around the development um, that we can play in, um, you know, I guess, uh, really increasing the work and, and the artists in the industry, you know, year round for the next decade. How is that development role reflected in this year's Midsummer program? Yeah, sure. Look, there's, there's probably a couple of ways. So one is that um, we run two uh, mentorship programs um, each year, um, and there's uh, you know there are always outcomes. Whilst it's but they're not you know focused on a project, they really are around the development of an artist and their practice, but invariably um, there's work that comes out of that alumni that goes into the festival. Um, So there's always some of that. But the other thing that we do is each year we take a really deep dive um, along with, you know, the, you know, we've got 145 events this year, so and most of them are live. So they really do cover the broad spectrum. But we, we try each year to look at an area of queer culture and arts practice that maybe not getting a lot of focus nationally and do a real deep dive in it. So um, in past years, um, that's been around um, gender diversity. It's been looking at what it is to be queer and an artist in our region of the world. This year, it's around um, queer families and particularly families with young children. Um, you know, there's, there's not a lot of that reflected in professional arts work um, in Australia. And so um, over the last couple of years, we've been really working towards that focus. And we've got a project called PRISM which has a number of projects within it um, during our festival dates and also one project that happens um, in the July school holidays as well. So, you know, it's it's outcomes that will um, go beyond the the date of the May 5th. But really it's about ensuring that um, we're upping the capacity of artists and work for, you know, an increasing number of um, queer families who are just not seeing their experiences reflected back at them um, um, throughout 
uh, events otherwise. So one of the events in that PRISM program, which immediately caught my eye, uh, it's hosted by the Listies, uh, my favourite kids' comedy duo, uh, who have been previously nominated for the uh, the most outstanding show uh, award at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, one of the only uh, kids' shows to ever have been nominated for that award back when it was known as the Barry Award. But uh, this is the Rainbow Family's Cabaret, uh, which uh, yeah. is going to be a, a showcase of circus, singing, dancing, um, and just to, to have something that is family-friendly, kid-friendly, friendly, but also covering a really broad array of art forms is, a, I guess, a really nice sampler to, to say to the kids, certainly, here's what you can do when you grow up, here's what you can go and see, uh, and for the parents as well. It, doesn't, it means that they don't have to restrict their cultural intake just to, I don't know, something akin to the Wiggles. Oh, absolutely. And that was the big reason for us developing the prison program was, you know, that the, where they were offerings, it was, it was pretty limited. Um, that cross-art form um, exploration is something we do across all of our program um, and in that we're a festival that really wants to play that development role and that showcasing role for artists in all um, art forms and in contemporary practice. Um, the, and that, that, with regards to PRISM, for example, there's one work um, by Gold Satino, um, this is Grayson, that's actually um, really intimate and only has small audiences of 10 young people each time. So, you know, it's a really uh, um, a, a work that's about site-specific, it's experiential, um, so it's, it's providing a really, um, I guess, intimate experience um, for a small audience, but one that's incredibly meaningful. Um, as you mentioned, there's um, the, the Rainbow Cabaret, which is a collaboration with Circus Oz and Arts Centre Melbourne. Um, we also have a really major work um, that we are doing um, that is called The Rainbow Tree. That is the one project that's sitting um, after our first festival dates, but it's a commission that we've been working on for um, about two years. Um, during the festival, we've got a beautiful uh, reading uh, called The Dinosaur Squad that's actually an intergenerational pride fairy tale. And it's been written co um, collaboratively by a 12-year-old trans boy and a 69-year-old trans woman. And so there's that real beauty of, of um, different generations coming together and exploring the parallels of their real-life journeys um, and, and putting to a story together that's about finding pride in gender diversity and um, and themselves, and sharing that with a broader audience. Um, so, you know, we're, we're really excited across the board to have those projects that um, are not only about providing young people and, their, um, and their, their families with work that didn't exist, but also providing young people from diverse families with a voice. What Midsummer also does is provide diverse communities with opportunities for uh, celebration and self-expression. Uh, traditionally in the past, people may have thought of Midsummer as focused in uh, the CBD and Melbourne's inner city, but the festival's boundaries extend uh, out through the western suburbs, uh, up to Castle Maine, and beyond. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's... I mean, obviously, I think it is fair to say that still the vast majority of our work is probably in the CBD or the suburbs, but it is a statewide celebration and um, we work, you know, with a range of partners 
to, to extend that opportunity as far as we can. And whilst the majority of the festival is live this year, and we're really, really pleased about that, um, we have also um, still ensured that there are digital offerings so that, you know, there are parts of our communities who um, may still not feel particularly comfortable in, in crowd situations, feel a bit more vulnerable, compromised health-wise, um, or they're in regional areas and don't um, have the ability to travel in this year. Um, so, you know, we're, we're doing quite a major... Um, a digital offering of our Pride March, which happens at the end of May. But we're also, um, we're doing um, a really, we're taking over Sydney Maya Music Bar, which I'm really excited about, with two concerts. And we're going to do a live broadcast of one of those, which is also really about, um, you know, making sure that, you know, everybody can access Midsummer from wherever they are and whatever their experience is. Which is a, a wonderful offering to make to the community across the state uh, and perhaps even outside of Victoria, because if if you're a closeted uh, queer kid in a in a country town, for example, it may you may not feel safe coming out, uh, it, or even if you're out to your to your family and close friends, you may not be able to physically travel to Melbourne. So, or similarly, if you're an elderly trans person who's just started to come out uh, after uh, late in life, for example, and again, uh, not necessarily feeling safe or comfortable in your immediate community, being able to access a community digitally uh, is such a significant step. It's something that we've seen grow out of COVID and it's really great to see festivals like Midsummer maintaining that in terms of access and equity for broad audiences who for one reason or another, be it mobility issues, age issues or where they live, uh, can't physically attend the festival. Yeah, absolutely. And on a slightly different tangent but a similar thing which is around that public space and, and people coming across um, arts activity um, that might not be in a traditional theatre. Um, that's something we've really um, been working on in the last few years, and particularly this year. I mean, our whole like our hero image, for example, came out of the fact. I mean, we all over the last twelve months have seen those images of you know the empty streets and the empty theatres and the empty libraries, and the realisation that the public spaces that we you know we know and love. I don't mean a great deal when we're not in them and we're not activating them. Um, and so we've got this beautiful project um, called Memory Lane um, in the CBD, um, which is a laneway public installation of the work of 10 artists' visual work that's really about, um, you know, LGBTIQ artists and culture that came before and, and you know, that... that you know, we'll take a step down memory lane and have a look at um, where we've come from. Um, but there's something that people can just come across as they're walking down a lane. Um, and then we also have a lot of projects that I guess are also really reflecting that echo of the the being taken away from public spaces and then re-entering them. So we've got a beautiful project that we're doing with um, Collingwood Yards um, uh, as a new arts precinct, and ha which had just really been, you know, handed back to, to artists to create and own pre-COVID. And it's a space that had been shut to the public for, you know, for many, many years. Started to re-engage with artists and then had to close to public and those artists over the lockdown. And we've got this wonderful projection um, visual arts multidisciplinary um, project called A Strange Space, which is really which is really looking at that sense of, you know, um, what do spaces mean to us and, and that, uh, that being able to re-engage with 
uh, with activity and places that we may have been kept away from for some time. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Karen Bryant, who's the CEO of Melbourne's Queer Cultural Festival Midsummer, which this year is running from the 19th of April until the 5th of May. One of the important things about Midsummer is that it's an open access festival like Melbourne Fringe. Any artist can register their work and participate in the program. So there's a broad range of works across various art forms, uh, theatre, cabaret, uh, the visual arts, live music. One of my highlights every year is the annual event Homophonic presented by Three Shades Black. Yes, I'm biased because it's on at... Uh, La Mama Theatre, where I'm the chair of the Committee of Management, but it's a celebration of contemporary classical music in a way that is accessible and friendly and re- relaxed. If you, if going to a concert at the uh, an MSO concert, if you think, I like classical music, but uh, maybe that's just a little bit it's just not my thing, then something like Homophonic is a great way to experience new music. And similarly, the the theatre program is vital and alive, uh, and you've got a range of hubs too across the city, which we should acknowledge. So, yes, there may be venues on the far side of town with some really interesting programming, but there may also very well be a venue near you. Tell us about what some of the hubs are and how their programming reflects different elements of their, their each institution. Yeah, and, and the, the, the hub idea was very much around shining a light on those venues that really are committed over the festival period to a range of, presenting a range of experiences, um, which might be in their theatres, but it's often also in their galleries and their foyers and really immersing themselves in, um, in the, the, the art and the stories of our communities. And often that then flows across to year-round as well. So this year, obviously, we've got Theatre Works. Now, they've been working with us on a whole range of new works, which is really important at the moment, you know, as artists are trying to reactivate. So they've got um, three brand new productions, but also two creative development showings as well throughout the festival. Um, so really, you know, any time during the festival, there's going to be something there to, to see. La Mama, as you mentioned, and Homophonic, which, which you mentioned, they're actually celebrating 10 years of classical music. So, you know, there's something really special to uh, commemorate there as well. Um, and they've also got a show called Sam I Am, which is uh, written and performed by deaf artist Sam Martin, who is actually one of um, our mentorship participants. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that sort of connection with the year-round development. Um, Hairs and Hyenas, which we have worked with um, uh, a number of years um, with them presenting intimate work in a small space, often really committed to new works and emerging artists. Um, and we've uh, partnered with them this year to make that possible um, to have seven new events. Um, we're doing quite a bit in the Malt House um, in their courtyard this year because um, doing things outdoors in, you know, in a post-COVID environment or a current COVID environment. Um, and so there certainly is an, in, an increase in events that are outside during this festival. Um, we've got people of Cabaret at the Malt House, um, which is like a variety gala. Um, you know, cabaret, burlesque, circus traditions, but really focusing on Indigenous and people of colour. Um, and we're also doing in that same venue a um, Sunday Sessions, which is um, a real relaxed music with a chill vibe um, where people can just get out, enjoy being out with people again um, and listen to some beautiful music. And then we also have long-standing relationships with Arts Centre Melbourne, um, with whom we're collaborating for the City My Music Bowl, but they're also presenting Fuck Fabulous. And um, Gasworks Arts Park is also a long-standing partner um, with us 
um, and they've got a uh, range of off- offerings, both visual arts and in their theatres. So, um, you know, we, we really um, like to promote and encourage people to support the venues, I guess, that are supporting our artists. There's so much to see at Midsummer Festival 2021. We've barely scratched the surface, but I look forward to interviewing quite a few of the artists individually about their shows in the coming weeks. Midsummer is running from the 19th of April until the 5th of May. For more details, jump online, www.midsummer.org.au. I've been chatting with the CEO of the Midsummer Festival, Karen Bryant. Karen, thanks so much for joining us and chookers to you and the festival team for uh, an outstanding Midsummer 2021. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Coinciding with the fact that the Comedy Festival on, there's a, a mob called... Uh, Dummies Corp is the name of the group who are putting on a show called Dumb Detectives in Cirque Noir. Uh, and the found, co-director and founder of the, sh- the show and the troupe, Jamie Bretman, joins me on the line. Jamie, hello. Sorry for that slightly awkward introduction. That's all right. Thanks for having me. Oh, good. Oh, good. I'll, uh, I promise I'll be more professional in a moment. Um, yeah. So uh, why do a circus show that is inspired by film noir because that's kind of like the, the the kind of I guess the pitch the elevator pitch of the show film noir circus for adults. Yeah. Well, so what was the question? Why did we why, do that? Yeah. Why kind of I mean film noir is a, a, a genre from the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. So kind of it's a historical document. It's a certain style of storytelling and filmmaking, femme fatales, hard boiled detectives. Why draw inspiration from that for a contemporary circus show? Oh, well, it actually came from the fact that uh, the cast that are in the show were performing in one of our shows, Trash Test Dummies, which is a family-friendly show, and we wanted to make an adult show. And so they basically brainstormed most of the ideas, and one of them just suggest- suggested film noir, and everyone just basically went on board. Um, and so it was really exciting to kind of already have a really great theme to go with. And we really wanted this show, which is a bit different from other shows, to have some kind of narrative. So being able to like draw from film noir uh, it meant that we could have a really great narrative and then we had the challenge of trying to fit in the circus into the narrative which is sometimes difficult to do but I think we've done a really good job of that. Well I look forward to seeing how you've kind of blended it together but yeah I guess the other question for people who are more familiar with your company and their work um, as you said best known for making shows for family audiences and children so uh, Trash Test Dummies in 2013 and then Splash Test Dummies in 2017, um, which have been critically acclaimed and warmly received by uh, children and parents alike. So this is very much a departure from that familiar, family-friendly model to the extent that the media release I got specifically said, do not bring children to this show, or words to that effect. (laughs) Um, Yeah, essentially we just wanted to branch out and do something a little bit different um, that also, yeah, had a, a wider scope for us to be able to go to festivals as well and potentially have two shows in the one festival because we actually have three different kids shows at the moment the other ones don't mess with the dummies um, which is an all-female cast they're also playing comedy festival Um, and so being able to have an adult show as well means that we've just got more touring um, scope I guess Uh, and it's just a different challenge and more exciting and it's a different it's but although it's a a new um, I guess like doing an adult show is new for us it still keeps in with a lot of the things that you can you would expect to see in some of our other shows. So if you've seen our other shows for families, 
there's a lot of similar things except it's for adults. So we still have the kind of narrative-driven storytelling, comedy, still got your slapstick and your acrobatics and your juggling um, and all that sort of thing. It's just taken to the next level that there's uh, probably a few more dick jokes thrown in. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, it does intrigue me that you've you've kind of reversed the trend uh, in some ways because a lot of comedians, for example, um, have started doing shows for kids and families uh, and I guess lowering the the well, actually raising the tone rather than lowering the tone. Uh, they've recognised that they can do two shows a day, adult show at night, and then do a kid show during the day to diversify their audience, bring in an, an additional income stream, and so forth. But you've reversed that. You've started making kid shows, and now you're doing this kind of slightly, well, slightly more than slightly more adult show for audiences fifteen and up. Yeah, so when we made our first show, um, which was Trash Test Dummies, we didn't even consider who our audience was. We made a show that we wanted to make that had the skills that we wanted and loved. And uh, we basically, yeah, made the show. And when we first performed it, it we were told that it was a kid's show. So we didn't necessarily make it as that. They said, oh, there's no nudity in it. There's no swearing because we don't really talk. Uh, it's It's basically for families. And so then we started advertising it that way and we change it from all the programming to say that we're a circus show to actually we're a kids show and the circus is secondary um whereas before that we were advertising ourselves as a circus show but then yeah so then once we had trash test going we were like right we better make another show because after about three years of touring all over the world they we needed to make something new we made splash test dummies um and just kind of went off what we knew worked and what people loved and what we what was our um, strengths, I guess, as performers. Yeah, once that was touring, we actually kept getting bookings for Trash Test Dummies, and so we couldn't do both shows at once, so we hired a second cast to do Trash Test Dummies, and that's the cast that now have made Dumb Tectors in Cirque Noir, and part of that was about giving them a show that was their skill set and that was something they made together as opposed to doing a show that we had created and they were just performing in. Which so is such a super a, passion project for them. And that's an essential part of circus because one of the things that I love about contemporary circus as an art form is that it's not always, as you've just indicated, but so very often artist-driven. The Instead of a show, instead of contemporary dance, which is a choreographer making work on the bodies of the, audi- of the acrobats or the dancers, much of contemporary circus is the, the artists making their own shows, doing their own tricks. Uh, and there's not always, but definitely there have been times and I've seen... Um, uh, Acrobats who've inherited a show, they're remaking something that somebody else has created. And sometimes it does feel like a photocopy. There's something kind of sometimes just something slightly missing. It's that second or third generation removed from the original passionate work. So this new work, Dumb Detectives in Cirque Noir, as you said, is very much made by the acrobats. It's their show. It's their skill sets and their specialised kind of tricks on display. Yeah, absolutely. And it's the first time we've had a proper, um, I guess, network of other creatives working with them as well. So we've got two, I'm directing it as well as Claire Bartholomew, who's an incredible um, clown master. She's amazing. Um, as well as having people making music for the show and puppeteers working on puppets. And there's all, because there's not just circus in the shows actually yet. Yeah, there's puppetry, there's dance, there's, um, there is circus, there's burlesque, there's acrobatics. So it's, it's quite a, a lot of different things. But yeah, having those, the cast actually getting to use the skills that they have and that they want and put into the show is really great. You do have some shows uh, in Australia at the moment. There's some big, amazing shows that are full of acrobats and it's all 
like acrobatic and a little similar to the sense of like you're saying with a contemporary dancer you can kind of replace an acrobat if they can do the skills because it's mainly focused on the beauty of the body whereas when you put in a narrative and clowning where you need to be able to react to the other performers that have like complicite on stage with the other performers and with the audience um it's a lot more difficult to replace a performer because you all of a sudden that team and structure has really changed, especially when you're working in a trio. Um, and not only that, but every circus performer generally has a different set of skills. So they might both be able to juggle, but one might do roussier and one might do aerial trapeze. And so finding someone who does the exact same three or four skills as another performer that can fit in and is funny and can do the clowning and might have some dance experience. Uh, it, it is quite a challenge. So, uh, And part of the problem with that is that circus performers are prone to injury because the stuff we do is so dangerous. Uh, it is it is difficult to have to replace people. Uh, in saying that, we actually, when we performed Trash Test Dummies, we each got injured at different points and we replaced ourselves with someone. And because all three of us had been replaced by someone, they were the three people that ended up covering us as the trash test army. So they'd all performed the show with us before they went on to perform it by themselves. Which raises the question, what's the uh, the lifespan of a show like Dumb Detectives in Cirque Noir, if, as you've said, it's so reliant on the, the specialist skills of the, the people who've made it and those additional elements of puppetry, which I believe is your femme fatale is a puppet, for example. So you've got... <laughs> <laughs> Giving it away. Uh, <laughs> It was in the media okay. release. If you don't want the media to know about those details, don't include them. But, yeah, to come back to that question, if this show has been is so kind of unique to the artists who have made it and who you and Claire are directing, does that mean that it's not the sort of show that can tour for the next six or seven years with new people coming in? Uh, that's really hard to say at this stage. I mean, Trash Test Dummies have been touring for seven years um, and we'd replaced the cast all, all throughout when people got injured um, and with a kids show you kind of have a lifespan that continues because you can do a tour for three years and then actually go back after three years to all the places you've been because you have a whole new set of young people who might have been three at the time but are now six um, or six at the time or are now nine who would want to see it again but also a whole lot of people who haven't seen it with adults it's a little bit different if you go and see it you get a lot of return people coming to see the shows if they liked it and, it and it builds and builds and builds but um yeah the, the plan is that it will be sustainable and, and last as long as we as long as we can and if we have to replace people at certain points we will definitely be doing that it's just a bit of, it's more of a challenge than uh, we can't do it it just me you know it changes the things and you have you potentially have to put in different skills so for instance i'm actually normally in splash test dummies and i'm injured at the moment i had ankle surgery uh and i do some some hoops in the show and the person who's replaced me can't do hoops so he's doing seer wheel instead and so they have to remount the show so that it would fit in with him doing that skill set to fit the narrative and the things that are going on in that show now if we're talking about narrative uh dumb detectives in cirque noir as we've mentioned uh, inspired by the world of film noir so femme fatales hard-boiled detectives uh, i would be hoping that the lighting design at some stage is going to i don't know kind of uh, lots of dark shadows and uh, kind of uh, lights thrown by i don't know uh, venetian blinds to try and capture that look of film noir but um 
how do you create that kind of narrative on stage, the, the psychological drama, the psychological tension of film noir, or are you not trying to, given that this is as also a comedy festival show while also being a noir-inspired circus cabaret? Yeah, so just on the lights, we do actually have a Venetian blind state, which is really interesting, and that we had our lighting designer design it, so it was very film noir, and when we actually went into our tech and then had our first preview, we realised that having it too dark, you actually lose a lot of the facial expressions that are really great from the clowning perspectives. So you have these performers who have rubbery faces who are doing these amazing things with their bodies and physicalities, and sometimes you lose that when you go into the shadows too much. And so we're still in the process of like refining when we're going to light it a little bit more, when we're going to be able to keep it hidden in the shadows more. Um, there's Yeah, there are scenes, and because I'm not a lighting designer, I had certain things in my head, but there are scenes when the detectives go into a into the crime scene there's no lights on and they're just lighting with their own torches and so that definitely creates like a it really creates a scene because they're in in this mansion looking for clues um with no lights other than the torches that they have so we're able to kind of um yeah through the lighting there is quite a lot that's done in that way um in terms of building more of a dramatic context i think it's it's hard to explain without giving anything away because we're trying to introduce these characters and a big part of the show is actually how I guess how individual each one of these characters are and how they relate to each other and how they relate to the audience and their connection on stage while still telling the story of the detectives trying to solve this particular crime and who's done it. And while they're doing that, they're also trying to fit in circus skills. So how do you put in 10 juggling clubs into the air while trying to stay into into the narrative? So that's been really interesting. I don't want to give too much away, but we've managed to find different ways to keep the narrative going and engage everyone enough and so that when we go off and do these random skills the audience is so engaged with the skill itself but it still fits within the narrative um, and holds the tension so that we can keep them on our little roller coaster on our little journey right through to the end I'm yeah. even, I'm so, even more intrigued now because it, at the mm-hmm. start of the conversation I was like film noir and circus yeah I'm in but uh, no I've very much been further intrigued so if you would also uh, like to to know what Jamie Bretman has been telling us about and you want to see it in action uh, Dummies Corp present the world premiere of Dumb Detectives in Cirque Noir as part of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival its official opening night is tonight the show runs through until the 18th of April Tuesday to Thursdays 7pm, Fridays and Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 6.30pm at the famous Spiegel Tent on the forecourt of Arts Centre Melbourne in St Kilda Road, running through till the 18th of April. You can book at artscentremelbourne.com.au to see Dumb Detectives in Cirque Noir uh, and it's not a kids show, let's just stress that. So Jamie, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and uh, as I said, I look forward to seeing the show. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.